0: Good morning. My name's Adam, and I am the Next Generation's pastor here. That is a lofty title for taking care of, uh, make sure the babies through graduating college students are cared for. So this morning's a very special day because it is Promotion Sunday for us as a church. So back in the kids area, we have all of our, uh, all of our elementary kids moving up a grade. And so whatever grade they're going to be in for the 2019-2020 School year is the grade that they are in in their classes today. And also for our students in middle school and high school is a Promotion Sunday. So we have our rising sixth graders going to be joining us tonight for the first time. We have our eighth graders moving up to be freshmen. And also we this morning get to celebrate our graduating seniors. So today is always a, a bittersweet day for me. And this is my 10th year now that I've completed. And so 10 graduating classes and it just never gets any easier. As I get to pour into these students and watch them grow, we've been through some great times together. We've been through some tough times together. And so the memories that, that are made and the growth that we see in these students is, uh, is just really powerful. And so it's hard, to, it's hard to say goodbye from our ministry and kind of send them off, but it's exciting because they get to go to the next chapter of of what God has for them. So if you guys are a um, graduating senior in here right now, will you go ahead and stand so we can recognize you um, specifically? There they are, all right. I just wanna kind of challenge you guys. um, First of all, uh, just so very proud of you. And um, I know specifically for a few of you, as I've um, been able to come alongside of you in some some tough times, uh, seeing just some really cool things, seeing how God has used you um, on the mission field as we go um, to different countries and as you guys have just have pursued him, how even when it seems uh, as life throws you some curveballs and it does get uh, very difficult. Uh, your resilience is just something to be admired. So thank you guys for being an example. So proud of you. And uh, as you guys get ready over the next few months and kind of prepare your minds, your hearts, and, you know, yourselves uh, to, to go off to um, to college, maybe you're hanging around, you're doing college locally, whatever it is. Uh, the next stage of your life is when really um, you, as you leave the, the home and uh, begin to to start thinking kind of in a way for yourself. And the things that we've been trying to instill in you um, as a ministry, as a church, uh, these, these <clears throat> beliefs and the things that God says about you in his word, um, we, this is when they really become your own beliefs and when you really have to wrestle through some things. And so just know that as you guys go, you always have uh, a place here and you always have leaders that uh, will continue to love you on your journey. And I will always be here for you guys and our church family will always be here supporting you and praying for you. So um, as you guys go, Uh, Just remember that and remember the things that we've been trying to just instill in you as far as um, how God looks at you and what he wants to do through you and uh, what he's already done and you be reminded of those things as you go, as you do start to to question and and struggle with things. Remember what he's done through you. Remember what he's done for you. Remember what his word says about you and um, again, just remember that you always have us um, that, that want to continue to support you as you go. So I want to pray for you guys. Um, and I want our church family just to kind of, um, to echo, uh, with me in prayer over these students as they get ready to, to move on to what God has next. So let's pray for them. And, um, and in a way now, even though months from now they go, but kind of a, a send off at least out of our ministry and uh, prayer together as a church. So let's go ahead and pray for these students. God, thank you for, um, thank you for today. And I thank you for the opportunity that uh, that we have to come together as a church family and uh, worship you and open your word and learn from you. And uh, specifically, God, right now, I thank you so much for these students. And I thank you uh, just how you've worked in their lives in so many different ways, each uniquely, uh, individually. But yet you've used them, God, in, in such a tremendous way, even to lead uh, the students that are younger than them. And I know um, that that will be missed um, when they when they go on. To uh, to college next year, what you have for them, and so God, I pray um, that the things that we have been been teaching them, the things that they have seen you do in their lives, um, that those would be the things that ring true as they are faced with some really really big decisions. Of um, you know, this is this is what I've always claimed to believe, but now uh, I, I have to really solidify this as my own beliefs, and um, as independence comes, and as there's the temptations seem to be even greater, um, and the things that are acceptable at the next stage seem to be um, far worse today. I just pray that you would protect them. I pray that you would uh, keep them safe. I pray that you would use your spirit to lead them, that you would give them discernment, um, that you would, uh, as they go, that you would uh, motivate them to find uh, churches to be involved in. I pray that you would motivate them to find clubs and organizations at their colleges and uh, their schools to, to be involved in. And, so I just gotta pray that you are just with them. We know you will be, but I pray that you, they seek you as, as they go. Thank you again so much for these students. God, I pray um, that, they would, uh, that they would continue to love you. <clears throat> and I pray that our students that are, that are moving up would look at them as an example of how to, uh, to lead in certain ways in our ministry. So um, just celebrate them today. Thanks for what you've done in their lives. your son's name, amen. All right, <laughs> go ahead and have a seat, guys. And um, we are going to jump right in to, uh, to our lesson for today. So if you guys do have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. We're going to jump to um, Nehemiah chapter 8 in just a few moments. But first, I wanted to, I wanted to do a quick recap of uh, where we've been for the last five weeks, just to kind of bring us up to speed um, for where we are this morning. So we are in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, over the last five weeks, we've seen God use Nehemiah to do some pretty, uh, some pretty incredible things in the face of some uh, pretty tremendous opposition. And so in, in Nehemiah 1, we see Nehemiah being burdened um, in because of the remnants, this is what it says, the remnants who had survived the exile were in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. So he heard this report of the people that were living in Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding area, and how they were in great trouble and shame, and how the walls had been destroyed and the gates had been burned by fire. And so an immediate response we see in Nehemiah is one of weeping, of mourning, of fasting, of continual prayer uh, to God on behalf of the people of Israel. And then in chapter 2, we see that it spurs him to action. We see him go before King Artaxerxes and he gets a blessing to go and rebuild. And Artaxerxes says, whatever you need, whatever supplies you need, go. You have my blessing. You have whatever it's gonna take for you to rebuild the wall. And so he goes, he arrives, he inspects the wall and he begins to formulate a plan and begins to gather the people that it's gonna take to to rebuild. And then as they begin building in Nehemiah chapter four, we see that they faced some great opposition from, from outside of the remnant, the Israelites. And so we see that there's some opposition and discouragement that comes from the outside and we see how Nehemiah responded to that. We see in Nehemiah chapter five, the the next week, we saw how there was opposition from inside the camp People who were um, of the Israelites were now um, bringing opposition and, and discouragement to Nehemiah. And then you see in chapter six last week, we see how Nehemiah faced opposition personally, internally in his life as he's faced with um, the decision, uh, the temptation to, to go and, and kind of forsake the, the finishing of the rebuilding or take a stand and finish what he knows that God has him to do. And we see him take a stand and we see a pretty tremendous verse where he says that he is not going to go because um, The Lord has has begun and has not done with the great work that he has started. And so we see all of these things that happen in the life of Nehemiah and the people, the opposition that he faces, and we see him um, go through these things as he's pursuing what God led him to do. And then at the end of chapter 6 last week, we do see that uh, they did finish the wall and there was cause for great celebration. Um, And and it says in the very, very end of chapter 6 that the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. So you finish it, it's done. And, uh, and then we are um, jumping to chapter eight. So we're going to skip chapter seven, but I don't want to just completely skip over it. So I want to give you just a brief summary of what happens in chapter seven, uh, just again to bring us to chapter eight. So here's what happens really quick in chapter seven. Hanani and Hananiah, they were given charge over all Jerusalem, and Nehemiah gives instruction to place guards at all of the gates that surround the city. So at all the gates where there are um, places to enter and exit, he says, we need to protect the people living inside, so we're going to place people at these gates um, to, to, to stand guard. And then they, they go through and they find a census that was taken, and so they number all the people who were of the remnant. So those that Nehemiah was burdened for in chapter 1, they, they count all of those people, and they do kind of... A census to see all of the people that are there. So this chapter seven, really, if you read through it, is a, a whole bunch of names and a whole bunch of numbers um, for majority of the chapter. And so they number all of the people. Um, and then in verse 66 through 69, here's what it says in chapter seven. Um, It says, the whole assembly together was 42,360 beside their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 singers, male and female. Horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. So that's kind of the number of people of the remnant that um, were left. And so this is where we kind of end. um, We find ourselves in chapter eight, the very last verse of chapter seven says, when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So the finishing of the wall, the, the wall is complete and the people now have gone back to their homes in their towns and their villages and they're kind of having some uh, some respite. They're taking a break from the building because they worked so hard, so diligently for 52 days. And so then we come to chapter eight. Before we jump in. Um, I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about by using some, um, well, just a few different things. So every two years, there's a survey that's conducted by Ligonier Ministries. And this last year, they partnered with Lifeway Research. And the, uh, essentially what they want to do is they, they pose these questions to people in America but also, demographically, they, they pose these, these questions, these statements to those that would consider themselves evangelical Christians, which is what we would consider ourselves. And so they pose these statements, and they get a response, they do a survey to see kind of the theological um, temperature of where we are as Christians in the United States. What are the fundamental convictions that are really shaping our society? So I'm not going to go through the full extent because it's pretty long, but I do want to offer up three statements and the responses just to kind of give us an idea of where people are in our country. So here's the first statement, and you may have a thought on these statements. You may have an immediate response of what you think, Um, but here's what it is. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature, okay? Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature, 52% 52% of evangelicals would agree with that statement. So over half of the people that claim to be evangelical Christians would say that people are by nature good. All right? Over half. What does the Bible say about that? Ephesians 2.3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, all of mankind, by nature, are children of wrath, are, by nature, children of evil, of sin. So by nature, the inherited nature that we all have is a sin nature, not a good nature. And so 52% of the people have a belief that goes contrary to what Scripture would say. Number two, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Sounds kind of harsh. 56% of evangelicals disagree with that statement. So a little bit more now would say that different levels of sin, the smallest sins don't necessarily deserve eternal damnation. They don't deserve eternal separation from God. Only the major ones would cause us to deserve that. What does the Bible say? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we know that we've all sinned. That doesn't speak to the levels of sin. But in Romans 6.23 it says, The wages of sin collective is death. Not the wages of our major sins on the tier. But the wages, what we deserve for every sin, be it small or large, deserves eternal separation from God. So contrary to what scripture says, 56% of people would disagree. Number three, worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 47% of evangelicals would agree with that, saying almost half of people would say it's okay, it's a valid replacement for meeting as a congregation, as a collective body, to just meet with your family in your home. What does the Bible say about that? Hebrews 10 24 and 25 says let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near so something has gone terribly wrong with how scripture is being taught in our churches years ago an author compiled a list of, of uh, different mailings, different articles that were in uh, newspapers and magazines that had come from large churches. These are statements and quotes from large churches. Here's what some of them said. There's no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. That's good. Practical's good, but make sure that they know it's witty. We are gonna be witty when we preach to you. Here's another one that came from an article in a magazine. Our answer is God, but we slip him in at the end. And even then, we don't get heavy. No ranting or raving, no fire, no brimstone. Our pastor doesn't even use the H word. (laughs) Call it gospel light. It has the same salvation as the old time religion, but with a third less guilt. This is what a church advertises as what you're going to receive. Here's the last one. The sermons are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. (laughs) You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It's sophisticated, urbane, and friendly talk. This is what churches are advertising as what you're going to get when you walk into the doors of their church. In other words, what these churches are saying is we want you, the consumer, to be satisfied and to feel comfortable. We just want you to get what you want. We may dumb down the gospel a little bit. We may leave certain parts out because we don't want to offend. But there's something that's just gone terribly wrong. And I think if you look at studies like that and you, and you read these things, I think it's pretty safe to say that we need some sort of revival in the American church. There's revival breaking out in other parts of the world and it's incredible. I read an article the other day that one of the fastest growing countries for Christianity right now, I don't know if you guys saw this, but it's Iran. One of the fastest growing places of Christianity right now in our world is Iran. Iran a place that has has been so hostile to the gospel. But we are seeing the opposite happen, right? People are are taking this book and they're saying, whatever I want it to mean for me is what it's going to mean. I'm going to interpret it how I want to interpret it. And whatever my core belief is, I'm I'm gonna make sure scripture fits that. Not I'm gonna fit my core belief around scripture, but I'm gonna fit scripture around what I believe to be right. So we're gonna be in Nehemiah chapter eight. And uh, we see a revival break out. This is one of the earliest revivals that we see. As the people are struck with their, um, their apathy, as they're struck with their lack of knowledge of God's word, and it's going to teach us a lot about what our response should be to this book. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8, in verses 1 through 8. We're going to read and then break it down a little bit, and um, then we'll continue on as, as we break down this passage. So let's read verses 1 through 8 in, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood all of these men on his right hand, and then on his left hand, all these other men. And uh, you try. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord. The great God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, some more men and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So let's break it down a bit. And there's some things we can learn already in, in these uh, verses. So verses 1 and 2, we see they come, they come together collectively. They're all in their homes. They're kind of taking a break. And something stirs in them. And they all come together in the square. And uh, something, for some reason, they're like, you know what? We want Ezra to bring the, the law and read it to us. And they're like, yeah, we we need that right now. So they call on Ezra, and we need to kind of know who Ezra was because he's important to this story. So who was Ezra? This is kind of the first introduction we have of him in Nehemiah. Well, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, we see that he is a scribe who is skilled in the law of Moses. So he really knows those first five books of what we now have as our completed scripture, the Pentateuch, as we call it. And then in Ezra 7.10, we see that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. So Ezra is someone who has has committed his life to studying God's word, to studying the law, and then teaching it to to Israel and trying to make sure that they understood what God said. And uh, by the way, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in 458 B.C., And the wall was completed in 445 BC. So he had been there for 13 years already teaching the law. He had been teaching it. 13 years, so it wasn't just some random guy. They knew who Ezra was. He had been out there in the city square. It's like the platform had already kind of been built for him to be out there reading God's words, so they knew who he was, and he was trying for 13 years not just to get them to hear the words, not just to get them to hear and, and then walk away, but to really give them a deep understanding and then follow the words of the Lord. And then you also see in verse 2 that there were men and women and all who could understand, so not just the adults, but also at the age that a child could begin to understand what God was saying, they wanted them present as well. And the date is very important that we see in, uh, in verse 2. It says that it's the first day of the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month. You go back to Leviticus in, uh, in the book of the law, and here's what we see about the beginning of the seventh month in the life of Of Israel, in in uh, chapter twenty three, verses twenty three and twenty four, it says the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation." So there's a little bit to what's the first day of the seventh month. And then in uh, chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, you see now on the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. And then in verse uh, uh, 34 of that same chapter, It says, speak to the people of Israel, saying on the 15th day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. So Ezra had been teaching this book, the the books of the law, most likely when it says that it is the first five books, which we refer to as the Pentateuch, for 13 years. And so if Leviticus is a part of the books of law, the people had been hearing this for 13 years. So they had a little bit of a a reference point when he says the seventh month, they kind of go, oh yeah, wait a second, we've heard that over and over and over that something is supposed to happen in the seventh month. We're supposed to be celebrating something, which by the way, today, it wasn't so then, but today, this, the seventh month in the uh, Jewish culture is when they, it's, there, it's the Jewish New Year. So the first day of the seventh month is when they celebrate the Jewish New Year and we know it as Rosh Hashanah. So this is not this time, but now it is the Jewish New Year. So it is still very significant in, uh, in the Jewish culture. Um, Belief system in, in the Jewish culture. To kick off the seventh month, we have these celebrations, so the people are aware of that. And then in Deuteronomy thirty one, we're going all kinds of Old Testament on you guys this morning. But Deuteronomy thirty one, Moses commanded them at the end of seven years, at the set time and year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes together before the Lord your God at the place He will choose. You shall read the law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people. The men, the women, the little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess." Deuteronomy also a book of the law. So they had heard these things. Moses commands when you before you celebrate the feast of booths, have everyone gather and read the book of the law. Read it, it it's in, in its entirety. Read the whole thing before the assembly of Israel. So think about this, kind of where we're at right now. Okay, Nehemiah heard that Israel, the remnant, was in great trouble and shame. He confessed in chapter one before the Lord the sins of Israel that they had acted corruptly, that they had forgotten the statutes, the commands of the Lord. So he's confessing on their behalf that that they had sinned, that they hadn't been for 13 years, at least, maybe longer, but for the 13 years that they've been back in Jerusalem and Judea, that they haven't been following the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. So Nehemiah is confessing these things. Even though Ezra had been teaching them for 13 years, over and over and over again, they were hearing the words, but they were not compelled to act on them. So the Nia comes along and he's so passionate in his pursuit of of leading the rebuilding of, of this wall surrounding Jerusalem. And in the face of constant opposition, taking only 52 days, they finish the rebuilding of the wall. And the people see this and it stirs something inside of them because they realize that apart from God being behind it, it could not have happened and would not have happened. So they start to see, wow, God is really working here. He accomplished something great through us. So they're sitting at home, finally taking a break. From their work, and then a commentator says this about where they're at. The people were overwhelmed with guilt and gratitude. Guilt because for years they had ignored God's law. Gratitude because they knew that in spite of their disobedience, God had chosen to bless them. They were keenly aware that apart from God's intervention, there would be no wall. Consequently, the people began to experience a deep sense of remorse for their years of spiritual apathy. So much is happening here, so much is happening behind closed doors in their homes, so much is happening in their hearts and their spirits, that literally a revival starts to break out right there in that town square. Look at verse 3 again. Here's what it says. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's six hours that he read straight, okay, There's no breaks. If you guys have done secret church with us, it's like every hour you get a break for some snacks and a drink and a potty break and it's, you know, but not not this. This was like he just read for six hours and then we see later on that he did that for seven days straight, six hours every day and they kept coming back and wanting more and uh, in verse five, you notice their posture. As he opened the book in the sight of all the people, they all stood they stood up out of reverence for the word of God. And by the way, it says that they maintained that posture. So they kept standing for six hours listening to the book of the law be read. And you also notice their response in verse 6. They're agreeing as he's reading, amen. Amen. They're agreeing with what he's saying, what what the the book of the law is saying. They're lifting their hands in response. They're lifting their hands to God. They're also bowing their heads in worship. Some of them are just so broken that they hit the ground and they're bowing their heads before, uh, their faces before the ground. And guess what? They weren't singing. They weren't having some great rock concert worship set. They're not like feeling the emotion of the music left in their hands. It's not some witty message from the stage. It's not a bunch of personal illustrations. It's not some, some, you know, story that's going to pull you in and captivate you. Literally, he's simply reading God's word, and their response is one of revival and worship, and they are just overwhelmed with the words that are coming out of the book of the law that they can't help but physically respond in worship. So you look at that, and you look at their response, and it's it's so humbling when we think about our response often to the word of God. But why is the response that way? Well, because it's alive, it's living, it's active. And so when the words are being read, they are, they are overwhelmed with what God has done, how, how God has moved through, through the history of, of Israel, and then what he had just accomplished in their midst, and they're just overwhelmed with it that when they're hearing about him, about how powerful he is, about how great he is, about how much he loves them, they're just overwhelmed to worship. And this is their response. And as Ezra's reading, it tells us in verse 8 also, um, and this is just kind of a little side note of, of study um, as we go deeper, but it says in verse 8 that they, uh, that they were men standing there translating. So first you see in verse 8 that they were giving sense so that the people understood the reading. And then following that in verse 9, you see that they, um, 9 and 10, you see that they, they wanted to understand. Well, Why would it tell us that they were understanding, but they needed to understand? So just quickly, if you are a little bit deeper of a studier of God's word, the reason why it says that in verse eight is because this is, this is them translating scripture to the, to the men and women and the children. So in a thousand years, it had been since Moses penned the, the words of the law until the days of Nehemiah. So a thousand years had passed. You think about time and how languages can change and where you live and how certain languages and, and cultures influence language, and you can just drive you know, somewhere in North Carolina, and you can't understand what people are saying, but yet it's all English. And so, you know, you can imagine that when a thousand years has passed, um, it can be a little bit hard to understand the original Hebrew that's being read. Um, they lived in the midst of other cultures, of other tongues. And, and so they had, um, as one pastor put it, they had Hebrew hearts, but Babylonian ears. In chapter 13, verse 24, you also see it said that half of the children of Judah did not understand the language of Judah. So half the children that lived there in Judah and Jerusalem didn't even understand the language. So they needed translators. So that's verse 8. You see them Translating One of the greatest things that I've been able to do uh, when we go on some of these mission trips when we go internationally is being able to get up in front of a church and preach, but have it translated in their, uh, in their native tongue. It's so cool to me to just be preaching and like going after it and having the translator preaching and going after it in their, in their tongue. There's just something really cool about the fact that it's coming out in English, but then coming out in whatever language it is um, that they're preaching and having those people understand what I'm saying through somebody else. And this is what we're was taking place. So as Ezra is reading the law, they have translators that are there that are helping them understand. So now in verses 9 through 12, let's, let's continue on through here. It says Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law then he said to them go your way eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength so the Levites calmed all the people saying be quiet for this day is holy do not be grieved And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So they're so overwhelmed by God's word and their apathy that they're weeping. They hear the word of God and they're just so broken over that they just begin to weep and they're they're all together just going oh my goodness God we failed you and I, and we we've been apathetic we haven't cared about the things of you we haven't taken your word seriously we've just been living how we want to live so selfishly and Nehemiah and Ezra got, they, they're like guys look um, we we want to celebrate right now okay so draw your eyes All right, there'll be a time for weeping, but right now it's time to celebrate. Look what God's doing in our midst. This is a time for us to celebrate. Dry your eyes, go home, eat, drink, rejoice. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. So we get it, you're broken, but today God is doing something great in our midst. Let's celebrate that. Don't be so broken that you miss what God is doing, but, but take that brokenness and turn it into a reliance on him and a celebration because of what he's done. And so the revival continues. Now they're going into their homes and they're celebrating and they're sharing meals together. And they're praising God because even though they've been, they've been forsaking him and they've been living in such a way that, that has been um, selfish and turning their back on him, Still, they know that the the joy of the Lord is their strength, and so they go, and they begin to celebrate. Um, And then in verse 13, it says, on the second day, The heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. I was—I said it wrong when I said verse nine, but it's verse thirteen here. So they come back on the second day, and now they want to study the words of the law. They don't just want to hear them and understand in their in their tongue, but now they want to study and they want to go deeper. So they come back for more, and and they're like, "Listen, we want—we want to hear it again, but we want to go deeper. We want to know what this means for us. We want to know, you know, the the Greek and Hebrew words and what the words mean." And how it fits into our culture, and we want to really understand why the seventh month has so much meaning and why that was such an important thing. We don't want to just gloss over the fact that it said, hey, it's the first day of the seventh month. That's cool. So now we know what the timing of the year was. But So we go deeper in our study, and we're like, well, why does it say that? Why is the seventh month important? Why did that matter to this, to this passage? Why contextually? Like, we want to go deeper, and they wanted to go deeper. They're like, read it to us, but explain it. Teach us on a deeper level. We don't want you just to read it, but now we want to break it down, and we want to understand God on a deeper level. And so they come back for more. Let's go through uh, verses 14 through 18 and see what their response is now. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people... Waited six months, and no, the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the day of Jeshua, the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So you see that immediately God says we should do this, holy moly, we haven't been doing this, and it says even since the time of Jeshua or Joshua, so even since the time of Joshua, we haven't celebrated like we should have been celebrating. We have forsaken this for a long, long time. It's time to change that. So immediately they go out and they begin to gather everything they need to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The feast was to last seven days. And during that time, the people were to live in booths or huts that were made of sticks and and tree branches. It was supposed to commemorate the dwellings that were similar to what their their forefathers had lived in when they were wandering in the wilderness. It was supposed to be a celebration of God bringing them through the the wilderness years and, and how they lived. And so they're like, wait a second, we haven't been doing this. Let's go do it because this is what God tells us to do. This is the days for them now, spiritual renewal. So they get busy building booths. Why do they do that? Because God said so, and for them, that was enough. There wasn't any discussion needed. There wasn't any, let's call on the elders and make sure that this is really what God wants us to do. God said it, so they did it. We need to look at this book in the same way. What does God say? Let's go to the New Testament. Let's start reading how he tells us to live. And when he tells us to do something, hey, here's an idea, do it. Don't just read it and be like, that's a great idea. I'll work on that. For the next few weeks, I'm going to pray over what that looks like in my life. No. Hey, guess what? God said it. So today when I leave church, I'm going out and I'm doing it. And it may not go well the first time, but I'm going to keep doing it. Why? Because God told me to do it. Guess what God says? So they immediately respond. It's the power of the words of God. And so this story, um, there's so much we can learn from this story and you know we look at Nehemiah and it's it's a story of the rebuilding and and what God uses them to do and then you get to this part where the people are going we have we have sinned we have failed we have not taken this book seriously we have not looked at God's law as something we need to really live by it's been a thousand years since it was written it is outdated it's been two thousand years since Jesus walked the earth things are outdated We live in 2019, so we're going to go ahead and change the words of God because that's what culture tells us to do. And I'm going to say that I believe that this is now right 2,000 years later because we know better than people of this time because we're so much smarter and we have technological advances and holy moly, let me, okay, that's not part of this and that's a soapbox, so I'm going to step off, but it just borderline infuriates me when we think that we can change the words of God to fit what we believe is right if you haven't caught that now. So let's just move, let's just move on because I'll, I'll go for a long time. Um, so I wanna give you six things, six takeaways from this passage for us as we think about God's word, okay? Um, six responses that we should have to God's word as we see how, how Israel responds in this passage, okay? Six responses to God's word. Number one, we see in verse three, that the, uh, the people were attentive to God's word. They were attentive. I mean, it says that word. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So here's the, I'm gonna ask some challenging questions now, okay? Um, and these are not, by the way, I, I may say you, but I mean we, if I didn't put we in my notes. I put we sometimes, but I mean we collectively. When we are here, And God's word is open on this stage. Are you paying attention for the 30 minutes? Well, now 33 minutes. When you have the Bible app open on your phone, is that the only thing you have open on your phone? Six hours they stood and they attentively listened. Anyone in here moviegoers? Sit for hours in a movie, just gripped by a fictitious storyline. Sports fans in here, got the NHL playoffs going on, got the NBA playoffs going on, college World Series, French Open just ended, Women's World Cup, all kinds of great sporting events going on. Sit there for hours and watch sports. I don't even care about hockey, and I've watched every Stanley Cup playoff game <laughs> because it's exciting. I'm attentive to what's going on for hours, 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Does God not deserve more from us? Are we attentive to the words of God? Number two, we see in verse five that they have a reverence for God's word. Why? Because when he opened the book in the sight of all the people, He was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Have you guys ever been in a church like that? There's still churches today that when they open the word of God, everybody stands to read it. Still a lot of churches like that. I think that's cool. That's pretty cool when churches do that. Um, It's showing a a reverence, a respect for the word of God. It's not showing a reverence, by the way, for the book. Don't hear me when I say that the, the book in and of itself, it's the words. It's the word of God. It's the message behind it that we have a reverence for. But do you have respect for this? Do you have a high opinion of this book? Does it sit idly during the week? and Then it comes with you on Sunday morning and then sits idly during the week. We take our hats off to salute the flag, and rightly so. We should show respect for what it represents. And so, take our hats off, we stand silently. Um, I was sharing this with the kids volunteers, and Laird said, you know, another example is when a senior officer walks in to a room... No matter what's going on, um, the, the, the people in there, the, the other military folks, I don't know all the terminology, but they stand at attention, out of respect for that person. They stand up and they, they revere that person, hold that person in high esteem. God's word, so much more than those examples. Do, do we revere it? Do we respect it? Do we hold it in high esteem? In verse six, you see them move to worship. I love it when I hear the occasional Amen. When something is said from the stage, that's how they answer. Amen, amen, they are agreeing with. That means so be it. Yes, that's true. We agree with what you're saying. We agree with what God's word says. They're lifting up their hands in worship. They're bowing their heads down to to the ground in worship. So we see a worshipful response when they read God's word and when they hear of what God has done. Are you moved to worship when you hear about what God has done for you? Are you moved to worship when you hear about what Jesus has done for you? you, Are you moved to worship when he hears how he loves you? Are we moved to worship God through the reading and study of his word? Number four, you see in verse nine that they have a deep conviction. This is when it says that they began to weep when they heard the words of the law. When you hear certain things and you're not living up to the standard that God has set in place, does it cause you to weep? Does it cause you to be broken? Oh man, I I haven't been living like God's been telling me to live. He says here that I should live this way. He says here that I should live this way. I haven't been doing that. Are you broken over that? Or or is it is it well? I gotta try. I gotta try hard. I gotta I gotta work harder at that. But it's okay. I mean, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. So you know we are covered. But does it? does it create in you a deep sense of, of brokenness, of, uh, of conviction over our sins and our shortcomings because of God's standard? In verse 13, we also see that they were hungry on the second day, they came back and they wanted to study the words of the law. And then it says in verse 18, they kept the feast for seven days and they continually read. They wanted more. And they wanted more. and They wanted to go deeper and they wanted to learn so much more. And while they had five books to learn from, we have 67 books to learn from. We can never, ever in our whole entire lives really get to the depth of everything that's in this book. Are you hungry to learn more? Are you hungry to dive in? Are you hungry to, to say, wow, it, Jesus said this, and that's a reference to the Old Testament. I'm going to go back there and I'm going to read all about Why he's bringing that up, and why that's important to us now? Wow, Jesus went through this for me. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read through Isaiah and see the prophecy behind why what Jesus went through was already talked about. And I want to I want to go back and forth and I want to get deeper and I want to see the correlation and I want to know what God meant there and I want to know the original language so that I can know exactly what He's saying to me and I want to know what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to live. I'm so hungry. I want to soak it up. I want to eat it up. I just want to digest and then go back for more. Are you hungry for God's word? Are you reading God's word not just to say you? read it? Not just the five minutes on our Bible app, which is a great start, but not just to go, I read my Bible for today. That's great. And now I'm going to go on living like I've been living. But are you really getting deep? Are you really trying to understand on a deeper level who God is and what he wants for you? Because that's what their response was. They were so hungry. We've been missing out for 13 years and then some on what God has for us. We just, we, we want to catch up for lost time. We want so desperately to know who he is. They were so hungry. And then in verse 16, you see an immediate response obedience when you read god's word does it spur you to action us to action even the ones that are really really hard right it's easy sometimes when you go that's an easy one but the things that are difficult for us go out and make disciples what does that mean well that's not for me because i don't know how to do that well that's a call for every christian So if Jesus says, go make disciples, are we obeying that? Is every one of us in this room actively pursuing somebody to make disciples? Because that's what God says. Are we obedient to the words of God? If we're simply reading this book and not allowing the words to really deeply affect us, Spur us to movement. We are treating it like any other book on the shelf. It's just a good story. It's just some cool Old Testament stories of bald men calling on bears and eating children. It's a fun story, right? It's in there. (laughs) But we treat it like every other book. What does it say in Hebrews? You guys know the, the verse? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is a book that is living. This is a book that changes our lives. This is a book that influences our minds and our hearts. This should be the book that we hold in higher esteem than anything else in this world. And if we want to see God do an amazing thing in and through us as a church, individually, as as people, as followers of him, it's got to start here. It's gotta start with us. It's gotta start with our pursuit of him through God's word. And then it overflows into us as a church as we become a people that are just so concerned about what God says that we are pouring over the words of God every single week. We're in here taking notes. We're highlighting the Bible. We just wanna learn as much as we can on a Sunday morning. And then that carries over throughout the week as we're doing our own study and our, and our own digging in and diving in. And as we do that together, then God is going to transform us. And I believe the revival that needs to take place in our American church the revival that maybe needs to take place in some of our lives in here this morning. Maybe the revival that needs to, to spur us forward as a church. It's gonna begin with us pursuing God on his word and taking this seriously. And then as we grow in knowledge and wisdom as believers and as a church, let's just sit back and let's just watch what he can use us to do. But let's really take advantage. Um, of God's word together. Let me pray for us. We're going to have the band come out, um, lead us in a few more songs. God, thanks for uh, thanks for your word, and um, I pray that we would not take it lightly. I pray that we would not overlook the importance of it. I pray that as the Israelites saw their need uh, for you through your words, saw the need to hear your words, saw the need to sit under the teaching of your words, God, I pray that we wouldn't forsake those things, and that we wouldn't sit by and thirteen years later go, man, God, I've been apathetic. I haven't been doing what you've commanded me to do. I haven't been spending time in your word. It's been 13 years that I've wasted. And I pray that that would not be true of us uh, in this room today. But yet we would say 13 years, God, I've been pouring over your word and I've learned so much about you, but there's so much more to learn. God, continue to give us that hunger and that passion to learn about you as a, as a church, as individuals. And we love you so much, God. I pray that our church is just founded on what we, what we find in, in scripture and um, just lead us forward. We love you so much in your son's name. Amen.